You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. You know, when I was a kid, um, we used to sing this song. Uh, He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you know that song? Well, you know it now because that's all there is to it. You just sing that over and over and over again. And then, you know, you and me, brother, and everybody here. And the idea was that the whole world is in God's hands, that he's in control, that what's in his hands, it, it, that's what he has control over. Look at your hands for a second. What do you have control over? Like, honestly. Well, what, what am I actually able truly to control. You know, you, you put a smartphone in your hand, you feel like you have a fair bit of control, right? You're like, I'm changing the temperature in my living room right now as we speak. It feels like control. You know, you can, you can send $20 to South Asia, right? Like, it, it feels like you're in control, but really, what are we in control of? You see, as human beings, one of the reasons why we're so unhappy is because we crave control. We want to control people, we want to control pain, and we want to control plans. We want to control people. We want our children to behave a certain way. We want drivers on the 410 to behave in a certain way. We wish that we could control other people. We want to be in control of pain. We want to limit the amount of pain in our lives. We, we want to manage it and prevent it as best that we can. We want to be able to control that. And then plans. Don't we want to know the future? Don't we want to know in advance? Not just possibilities, but the plan. We want so badly to know what's going to happen tomorrow or this afternoon or next year. We, we crave control, but as we... As we zero in on the death of a king today, if anyone seemed to have control in Israel, it would have been King Saul. But as we reflect on and learn about the circumstances surrounding his death, as things really began to spin out of control for him, we're going to find that real real peace and true strength and stability in our lives only comes when we relinquish our illusion of control and recognize that God is king and the king is in control and that he has the whole world in his hands. These next six chapters are sort of interesting. Up up until this point, the story of David and the story of Saul have sort of been the same story. David's been running and Saul's been chasing him. But now they're going to go on two different paths. And kind of like a movie that flashes back and forth from one scene in one location in one character to another scene, another location. That's what we're going to see chapter by chapter, section by section. So it begins with David in chapter 27 of verse 1. It says... Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should do, that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul shall despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. You see, God is control, in control, and today we're going to see just four times at which God is in control, even when it feels like he's not. Here's the first one. God is in control even when we want to escape. 
Even when we want to escape, David comes up with this little plan. He mentions the word escape twice there in verse 1. He says, there's nothing better for me to do than to escape to the land of the Philistines, to, to run away from Saul. But notice who David is listening to here. At the beginning of verse 1, it says, David said in his heart. And what does he say? It's a pretty depressing message. He said to himself, he said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, is that true what he was saying? Was it true that he was going to perish one day in the hand of Saul? That was not true. But he was saying it to himself. He was saying it in his heart. You see, we need to be very careful about who we're listening to. When we're thinking about our problems or our pain or our plan or people in our lives, we need to be really careful which voice we allow to have authority in our lives. You see, because God had told David time and time again that he would not die by the hand of Saul. He told it through Samuel when Samuel anointed him as king. Um, Jonathan said that he would not die, that David would be king. Saul himself said that David was going to be king. Abigail said that David was going to be king. Just about everyone said that David was going to be king. God told him time and time again, this is the truth. This is the plan. This is who you are, David. You are the king. Saul will not get you. And yet David allowed this voice inside of him, this voice of doubt, of discouragement, of despair, to speak to him. We need to be very careful about which voice we're listening to. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher and a medical doctor, said we need to be careful, especially when it comes to, to seasons of depression in our life, we need to be careful that we are not just listening to ourselves, but that we are speaking to ourselves. What David needed to do in this moment was when he heard that voice to say, that's not true, God has promised me that I will not perish at the hand of Saul. But God's in control even when we want to escape. So verse 2 says, so David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So he goes back to Gath. Now, in chapter 21, verses 10 to 15, he went to Gath already, but this time he's got 600 men. He went before on his own, and that was when he was on the say it, don't spray it um, plan, where he, was, he, he pretended like he was drooling on his beard, and he acted like he was insane. And so now he's like, hey, I'm back again. It's crazy David. And now, for whatever reason, Achish, who's the ruler there, agrees to have David stay. He gives him his own city, actually. Well, does the plan work? In verse 4 it says, And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. It seems to be working out fine for David. I mean, it seemed to work. It, at, at the end of, of verse 7, it says that he was there for a year and four months. Finally, peace. But was there actually peace? You see, when, when our strategies are short-sighted, our successes will be short-lived. And David wanted to escape, but what we're going to find is that his plan to escape led him right into a trap. You see, because this was not God's way. This was, this was not how God would want David to, David only listened to his heart, he only listened to himself. He didn't inquire of the Lord as we see him do so often. He just decided that he needed to escape, that he was tapping out, that he was going to quit and going to escape. But God was in control. 
But look at how David was behaving. In chapter 27, verse 8, it says, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. So he's wiping out these entire villages. Why would he be doing that? Is this an act of judgment? Did God tell him to go and do this? No. Verse 10 says, when Achish asked, where have you been making a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, against the Negeb of the Jerabilites, against the Negeb of the Kenites. So the locations in verse 10 are not the same as the locations in verse 8. He's lying to Achish. David is telling Achish that he's attacking his own people in in Judah and Judah's allies, the the, the Kenites and the Jeramalites. And verse 11 it says, David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while while he lived among the Philistines. These were the, these were the casualties of David's compromise. David's plan to escape and to protect himself put blood on his hands. Innocent people died because David wanted to keep himself safe. But then look what happens. You see, David has convinced the, the, this Achish that he's been attacking the people of Israel this whole time. Meanwhile, he's been lying to him. He's attacking all of these other people, including the Amalekites. Make note of that, because the Amalekites are going to come up a number of times here. But check out chapter 28, verse 1. It says, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are going to fight with me in the army. Makes sense to Achish. I mean, if you've been fighting against Judah and and the people of Israel all of this time, then it's only natural that you would join me in this formal military uh, engagement against Israel. So now David's in a trap. What is he going to do here? Look at at even his response. David said to Achish, "Uh, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Because David doesn't know what he can do in this situation. He's trapped. Does he go as the anointed king of Israel? Can he go and fight with Philistines against his own people? Should he come clean now and tell Achish what he's really been doing? Would the people of Israel accept accept him back after he's been living in Philistia for the last year and a half? He's trapped. But God is in control. Verse 3 says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, and in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Seems like a bit of a drastic change in subject, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's what's happening. We're shifting away from David, and now the scene shifts to Saul. As the, as the armies of the Philistines are amassing, and David is there with them, Now we're seeing from another perspective how Saul was reacting when he saw the Philistines coming. So there's the background. Verse 4 says, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled 
uh, greatly. Let's take a look at the map up here at the screen. So here's Philistia. Ziklag is where David was living. The Philistines left their region and they went up to Shunem and camped there. The, the people of Israel are in Gilboa, okay? And so there is, the, the Philistines have gone deep into Israel's territory and have declared war. And so they've, they've, they've set up camp there. And it says that Saul, in response, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. God is in control even when we are afraid. Fear should be no surprise when we're talking about Saul. I mean, Saul was chosen as king. The people wanted a king because they were afraid. But then it didn't take long before Saul their king. Every time you hear about Saul, it says Saul was afraid, Saul was afraid, Saul feared greatly, Saul trembled. And so here's Saul again. He's afraid. Now, what is he going to do with his fear? Is he going to trust that God is in control? Well, he starts off well, as he often does. In verse 6, it says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So he, he tried to seek God. But God didn't answer him. He didn't answer him by prophets. Well, Samuel was dead, and why would God bother sending a new prophet? Because he never listened to Samuel in the first place. And Urim, that's, the, that's that, the, the, the stone from the priest's garment. And, and you take two stones, it was sort of like a yes or no, like rolling the dice. And that was a way that kings would make uh, decisions in those days. Well, remember, remember that city Nob that, that helped David on his way? And how, how Saul ended up executing all of the priests in that city. And, and just one of them, Abiathar, escaped with an ephod. So he was the only one who had access to Urim and Thummim. So... Saul couldn't get an answer that way. And so he's stuck. But then Saul, in his, his, his characteristic impatience, says this in verse 7. He says to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So he, he seeks out a medium. He seeks out a witch or a necromancer. But Saul is going to be disobedient. First of all, he's going to be disobedient to his own command. Back in verse 3, we, we read that he had outlawed witchcraft in Israel. He had kicked them all out. So now he's going to break his own command. But his command was rooted in God's uh, command. Can we get Leviticus uh, 19 on the screen? Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then in Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, a terrible practice that took place in the ancient Near East. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So Saul, in the past, wanted to follow God's law. And so he kicked all of those people out of the country. But now Saul, because he's motivated by fear wants to disobey that command. Now, fear is the number one cause of temptation in your life. Do you understand that? The, the command that God gives more than any command in the Bible is the command, do not be afraid. Why? Because God loves us. He doesn't want us to sin. So he tells us, do not be afraid. Because when we're afraid, the next thing that happens so often, if we don't give that fear to trust in the Lord, the next thing that happens when we're afraid is we will sin. And that's exactly what happens with Saul. And so they tell him that there is a medium at 
Endor. Now, Endor is not the forest moon where the Ewoks are from in Return of the Jedi. This is where uh, Endor is on the map. So there's Gilboa where Saul is. Endor is up there to the north. Where is he going to have to go past in order to get to Endor? Shunem, where the people of Philistia are camped, where the army of the Philistines are camped out. So Saul is going to have to sneak past enemy, very unwise for the king on the night before a battle to to try all to have a seance with a witch. Verse 8 says, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went and he and two men with him and they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has Cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this live. What? Saul is swearing by the Lord. As the Lord lives. He is promising in the name of God that this woman who is about to break God's holy command is going to be okay. On what authority is he doing that? Again, we've learned this about Saul. He became so accustomed of talking the talk without walking the walk, saying, oh, blessed be you, and, and God be with you, and, and speaking in theological terms, but he, he didn't believe he was empty on the inside. How could he look someone in the eye who was about to sin, who was about to violate God's law, and say, you, everything's going to be fine with you. I swear to you in the name of God, that nothing bad will happen to you by engaging in this sin. It sounds a lot like, unfortunately, certain churches in our culture today who are looking at people who are engaged in sin and are saying, that is completely fine. In fact, we are going to celebrate that and bless what you are doing right now. That's the place where Saul is in. That's the place where our nation is right now. God help us. Verse 11, it says, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said, do not be afraid. Now that's a joke. Saul's the one who's afraid. That's what brought him here in the first place. And now he's saying, oh, don't, don't be afraid. Meanwhile, his knees are knocking. He's the one who's scared. Now, it's interesting that she gets frightened here. Now, some people think that the reason why God said don't visit mediums or witches or get involved in voodoo or any of that sort of is because it's all phony. Listen, nowhere in the Bible does God say don't do that because it's phony. There's lots of phony stuff. But God said don't do that because it's evil and because it's wrong. Because it's wrong to seek guidance from anyone other than God. And, and who knows if this woman was a phony, maybe she was actually real and actually was able to engage with evil spirits. But there was something about seeing Samuel. Maybe she had only ever uh, dealt with the dark side of the afterlife. And she had never actually encountered someone who had come from the presence of God. A righteous man who had died. Samuel, for whatever reason, she freaks out. She screams. She immediately recognizes that this is Saul. That has come to her. And, 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 and then 
Now, some people are, are, are questioning as they read God's word here today, you know, is this really Samuel? Did, did she really see Samuel? Or is this some sort of evil spirit masquerading as Samuel? Or what, what's going on here? Well, the narrator refers to this, this, this being that appears, refers to him as Samuel. And Samuel speaks in a way that's completely consistent with everything Samuel had said in the past. So you, you can believe what you want to believe, but, but ultimately the, the Bible just refers to this, this appearance as being Samuel. I mean, Moses and Elijah from the afterlife appeared, stood side by side, and spoke with Jesus. I mean, I mean they're with Jesus, so that makes a lot more sense. But God, being in complete control, could allow this witch could answer whatever request or or incantation or whatever and allowing Samuel to appear. Here's Samuel's question in verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Notice all the I, me, me, I, me, I. You see, it's all about Saul. The reason why Saul is afraid is because he's only thinking about himself. He's not thinking about the fact that God has the whole world in his hands. He's thinking about what he has in his hands and he sees nothing. And he thinks his, his only resource is what he can do with his hands. Notice how he says, the Philistines are warring against me. Is that true? That's not true. They're warring against the people of Israel, the chosen people of the living God. And so it's not up to Saul to win this battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. But Saul was so self-centered and self-focused, that's what drove him to be so fearful. Samuel obviously doesn't like Saul's answer because he asked the exact same question in verse 16 as he did in verse 15. Samuel said, why then did you ask me? For the Lord, for, for, why then did you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? He's, he's, Saul, you got bigger problems than the Philistines. And why are, you, why are you talking to me? You should be talking to God right now. You need to get right with him. You need to repent and return to him. He's turned away from you because you've turned away from him. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke, as he spoke to you by me. The Lord has, has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Notice this, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. So here is someone who is dead saying, you and your sons will be with me. He's saying that you will die. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear. How did Saul's plan of alleviating his fear, how did that go? He goes there, he goes to Endor because he's afraid. He gets to Endor, and what's the result? He's even more afraid. He's filled with fear now. You see, fear just grows and grows and grows. Samuel said, all of this is happening to you, Saul, because you did not obey. You did not obey concerning 
Amalek. I, I mentioned how the Amalekites are really key in this, in this sequence of events. This is what Samuel said to Saul when he didn't fulfill his mission uh, to, to, uh, against the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is what Samuel uh, said. He said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, also referring to a sacrifice. And then he says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's, it's, uh, it's of the sin of witchcraft, other translations say. Now at the time... It seemed a little random for Samuel to say that because the issue was, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. And, and because Saul was saying, well, you know what, it's okay that I didn't wipe out all the Amalekites as, as an act of judgment as God told me to do because I've got all these sheep and we're going to make a sacrifice to, the God, to, to God. And so it made sense that Samuel would say to obey is better than sacrifice. But then he says rebellion is like divination. It's like witchcraft. You see, it's as though Samuel were, were warning Saul, saying, the trajectory that you're on right now might not seem that bad. You, were tr you tried to fulfill God's plan, yet you didn't do it all the way. But the trajectory that you're on of being wise in your own mind and, and wanting control yourself, the trajectory that you're on is going to lead to something far worse. Witchcraft is probably the furthest thing from your mind right now, Saul, but if you allow this sin to continue to grow in your life, that's what you're going to end up doing. You see, remember this uh, diagram that we uh, looked at? I learned this from Pastor James McDonald, that when we sin, we should take responsibility. Because when we take responsibility for our sin, then that will lead us to repentance and to renewal. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but that, that is the pathway that we are supposed to follow when we've been caught in our sin. But with Saul, there was always rationalization and excuses and reasons why. And that rationalization led to repetition. He did the same thing again and again. Notice how he chased David. And then he would apologize and say, I'm sorry. But then he would repeat and rationalize. And ultimately, it leads to his ruin. And that's what we see happen in Saul's life. We see sin progress. It starts off as no big deal. He had a little, he, he was humble at the beginning. He's hiding among the, band, the baggage. But then that becomes an inferiority complex. And then he gets a little bit jealous. I mean, they're saying David killed 10,000. They're saying I only killed 1,000. But then he's, he gets really paranoid and he starts chasing David through the caves and, and trying to hunt him down. And eventually he, he becomes a madman. And some of us need to be very careful because we're dabbling with things that don't seem like they're such a big deal. There's sexual sin happening in our lives. Things that we're allowing to come before our eyes or things that we're engaged uh, in with someone who we, who we are attracted to. And right now it doesn't seem like that's such a big deal. But those things that you're looking at become other things, become worse things, become more perverse things. Or that person that you're, that you're romantically involved in, you keep going further and further and then that person leaves you and then there's more people and, and more sin and it grows and it snowballs and it snowballs. And when you're over here just dabbling in it, you never imagine that you're going to be over here. But Saul went from making a sacrifice a few hours earlier to having a seance with a witch. We need to either be intentionally identifying and eradicating sin in our lives or it will grow and develop and destroy us.
And that's what we see happen in Saul's life here. And Saul is given this terrible news. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to know the plan. He, wanted to, he didn't just want the possibilities. He wanted to know what's going to happen. And so he found out he was going to die the next day. And did that help him at all? It didn't. But God is in control. Then the story switches back to David now in chapter 29. How is he going to respond? How is he going to get out of this situation? Is he going to go to war with the Philistines against Israel? 29 verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring of Jezreel. This is even earlier than the time that Saul went to Endor. Verse 2, As the lords of the Philistines were passing by, passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on at the rear with Aphek, just trying not to be noticed, right? They're just sort of there at the back with the rest of the soldiers, marching along. Verse 3, The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? Achish said to the commander of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Now, Achish just looks like completely gullible in this whole story. Later on, he calls David an angel. You've been like an angel. David has not been an angel. He's been lying to him all of this time. Verse 4, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the men back. God's so merciful. David was put in, he had to make an impossible decision, but the lords of the Philistines made it for him. And so he was sent back. And so he goes back to uh, Ziklag, and uh, can we get the map back, on, back up on the screen uh, really quick? So the battle is happening up, they're, they're leaving Aphek, about to march to Shunem, and David was going way down, he's way out of the picture, going down to Ziklag. Chapter 30, verse 1 says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid. There's the Amalekites again. Samuel mentioned the, the Amalekites when he was talking to Saul. David had been doing raids against the Amalekites, here they are again. The Amalekites made, had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went on their way. Notice how the Amalekites, who were famous for being ruthless, were not as ruthless as David was when he was making his raids to try to cover his tracks. And for whatever reason, the Amalekites chose to keep everyone alive for, uh, for uh, to sell them into slavery or, or whatever, whatever they were going to do. But they didn't wipe out all of the children and the women as David had done. Verse 4, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Not no more strength to go and fight. Not no more strength to, you know, start rebuilding their homes. No, they didn't have enough strength to keep crying. Grown men wept and mourned with so much intensity, so, so overcome by grief, that they had no more strength to weep. And listen, loved ones, if you're in that place today, you need to understand, God is in control even when we have no strength. He's in control even when we, have, when we want to escape, when we're afraid, and when we, just, when we have no story, we don't feel like we can do anything. God is still in control. Verse 6 says, David was greatly distressed 
For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul. Why'd you bring us here to Felicia anyway, Dave? How's your great plan working out? Well, by the way, why didn't you have some of us stay behind as guards? Why did we all have to go with Achish into, uh, into battle? But it says at the end of verse 6, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When he had no strength, we didn't even have enough strength to cry, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How do you do that? Because I would like to know how to do that. <laughs> Uh, Sometimes there are times where I feel weak. Sometimes I feel despair. Sometimes I feel discouragement. How do I strengthen myself in God? Well, there's a clue. There's a clue that we're given a couple chapters earlier. Just turn in your Bibles real quick to 1 Samuel chapter 23. The same phrase is used, strengthening someone in God, but there's more detail. And so let's look at the detail that's given in this scenario. So this is uh, chapter uh, 23, verse 16. And Jonathan... Saul's son rose and went to David at Horish. So this is when David is on the run from Saul. Jonathan went to him, and then it says, and strengthened his hand in God. So how did Jonathan do it? And this is how he did it. Verse 17, he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. So how did Jonathan strengthen David's hand. He reminded David of God's promise. And this, loved ones, when we feel like we have no strength, this is what we are called upon to do, to remind ourselves of God's promise. And maybe you have one that comes to to your mind. I've got a couple, Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord will go ahead of you and be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Or Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These are promises that I can grab onto when I feel like I don't have strength. I can strengthen myself in God by clinging on to those promises. So much of the Christian life is just looking at our circumstances, not knowing how to do it, clinging to a promise from God's word, and then moving forward. And that's what happened with David here. Verse 7, David said to Abiathar, the only survivor, when uh, Saul commissioned that raid against the priests at Nob, the son of Ahimelech, he said, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. They were going to do Urim and Thummim. He was going to ask God, yes or no, should I go after the people of Ziklag? And God says, yes, God answered him. So Saul is inquiring of a witch David is inquiring of the Lord. You see the contrast here? Neither man is perfect, but David sought the Lord. So they go off, and they don't know how they're going to find the Amalekites. How are they going to be able to track them down? Verse 11, the only thing they find is that they found an Egyptian in the open country. Well, what good is he going to be? And they brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink. And then verse 12 outlines the whole menu of everything they gave him. And this random act of kindness. They had a lot on their mind. They're trying to find the Amalekites. Why are they bothering with this Egyptian? But in their kindness to the Egyptian, God was so kind to them. Verse 13, David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt. 
servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. This guy was there, and his master had left him behind. So obviously, if his master doesn't care about him, he doesn't care about his master. And so David asks him in verse 15, will you, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. Because he knew the route that they were going to take. And so this act of kindness to a stranger is really the key to David getting his family back. And so they go, they fight the Amalekites. Look at verse 19. Nothing was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. God was so kind to him. Even when David had no strength, God was in control and allowed him to find that, uh, that Egyptian servant that was uh, betrayed. Then in chapter 31 now, the story pans back from David and now it goes back to Saul, and the battle with the Philistines is about to begin. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Notice, Saul is even trying to be in control in his death. He's saying, I don't want to die this way. I don't want the Philistines. I, I, I want to control the pain. I want to control the plan. I want to make sure that I die on my terms here. But his, his servant wouldn't Listen to him. It says, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So he commits suicide. The ultimate act of self-autonomy and control. He takes his own life. Verse 5, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. So the army is defeated, the king is dead. This is a time of mourning for the people of God. And this is our fourth and final point that we need to be reminded of. That God is in control even when we are mourning. Even when we are mourning. And now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And David is back at Ziklag. He doesn't know what's been happening with the battle. He's so far to the south. He's far removed from all of the events that have been taking place. And a stranger walks into Ziklag. And he's from the... And he, he says that he was there at the battle. Look at verse 4. David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul, his son Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold the, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. 
And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And he said to him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingered. So I stood before him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that are on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So this Amalekite arrives with this story. He's got to explain why he's walking through Ziklag with a crown belonging to King Saul. And so he tells David this story. Now, uh, some biblical scholars believe that he's, he's lying here. That he, 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 he was just looting the, the fallen soldiers and he stole the crown. And now he bumps into David. He's, he's trying to find favor with David. So he makes up this story because at the end of chapter 31, Saul's already dead. So it, is he making up a story to somehow uh, earn favor with David and explain why he has uh, the crown. Now, now again, David takes his word and believes him. The narrator doesn't say that he was lying. Uh, could it be that chapter 31 is just giving a summary of the events and 2 Samuel chapter 1 is just giving more detail? Wouldn't it be fitting if Saul, who, was, who lived a life that was characterized by failure and not finishing tasks... That he was unsuccessful in committing suicide? Wouldn't that be fitting? That he, was, that he was there in agony, leading on his spear. He's had arrows from his enemy. He's fallen on his own sword. And he's still not dead. And it, wouldn't it be odd and ironic that Saul's death would actually come at the hand of an Amalekite? The people that Saul was called upon by God to wipe out as an act of judgment? Biblical scholar Robert D. Bergen said Saul had, ordered, Saul had been ordered to kill the Amalekites and now he orders an Amalekite to kill him. Whether this person was lying or whether they were telling the truth, they, they were clearly not respecting and revering. He tells this story about, quote unquote, dying with dignity, somehow uh, uh, euthanizing Saul. But really he's describing a murder. And there's this unique meeting of the mourners, David and his men, and the murderer, the one who killed Saul. And this, these stories are filled with bizarre combinations. You have the king visiting a witch. You have the hero going to fight with the enemy. Everything seems to be spinning out of control. And then David has this young man executed because he, lay, he claims to have laid his hand on God's anointed. And then 2 Samuel chapter 1, the story of Saul's life, ends with a poem that David authored. Verse 19, he says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Talking about Saul. And then he says, How the mighty have fallen. And then he repeats that phrase in verse 25, How the mighty have fallen. In verse 27, How the mighty have fallen. Things seem to be spinning out of control because of the death of a king. And how do we make sense of this passage? How do we make sense of, of the end of Saul's life? What does it all mean? How does it all uh, fit together? Ultimately, we can't understand the significance of the death of this king until we understand the death of another king. In this case, the mighty had fallen. But there was another king who was mighty who had fallen. 
You see, Saul was a king who died because of his own disobedience. But there's another king who dies that people mourned over, who died not for his own disobedience, but died for our disobedience. And as we trace our way through the story and the desire to escape and how we're always afraid and we feel like we have no strength and we're living lives of mourning, well, think about Jesus. Jesus didn't try to escape. It says that when he went to Jerusalem, knowing all that would happen to him, he set his face like a flint. And rather than running away from the cross, he walked right towards it courageously. And Saul wanted more information. He thought, if I could know the future, then I wouldn't be afraid. Jesus knew the future. He was always telling his disciples, the Son of Man's going to be betrayed. He's going to be put into the hands of the Sanhedrin. And then he's going to be crucified. But he was not afraid. He kept moving forward. And even when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, it says in Matthew 22 that, that an angel was sent, angels were sent and strengthened him. Even when he had no strength in light of all that he knew was going to happen to him the next day. And just as the people in Saul's day were mourning, when, when, when they knew that their king was dead, the disciples and all the people that followed Christ, when they saw him on the cross, when he, was, when, he, when he breathed his last, when he was brought down, when he was laid in the tomb, when the stone was rolled over the entrance, there was mourning. And it seemed like a defeat, a horrible defeat. Because the king was dead. But it was a defeat very different from Saul's defeat. It was a death very different from Saul's death. Because God is in control. And because three days later that stone was rolled away and that king rose victorious and he is still ruling and still reigning. And so in our own lives we don't need to give in to fear. We don't need to try to escape. We, we, we don't need to worry when we feel like we have no strength. And we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Because we know that Christ is king and the king is in control and he has the whole world in his hands. And those hands are scarred with nails. That, who is in, that is the king who is in control. That is the king that we place our trust in. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, you are our king. We worship you and praise you and we declare that your son is king of kings and lord of lords and that his name is above every name and that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, help us to seek your face. Help us to stop trying to control things with our own hands and our own ways, Lord. We give to you, God. All of our fears, our worries, our insecurities, all of our pain, all of the people, Lord, all of the, all of the plans and possibilities in our life, Lord. And we recognize that you are in control and that you are with us. God, help us to draw close to you now as we remember the death of the king. As, the, as we remember and take these symbols, the bread and the cup. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.